You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You're listening to 3RRR. A massive thank you to the team from the doctors. I think that sees them off for the year, so we won't see them back now until uh, sometime in Feb. I'm Dr Shane and I'm joined by a massive crew. I sent out an open invitation to them this week and guess what? Well, actually not all of them turned up, surprisingly. (laughs) But we do have in the studio, we have Dr Jennifer Henry. Good morning. Good morning. Dr Jenny. Good morning. I don't know why you call me Dr Jenny, Shane. What do you want to be called? Dr Jen, dude. Oh, sorry. It's very confusing, you two sitting next to one another, too, by the way. Because if I call Jennifer Jenny, she'll, she'll throw something at me. Uh-huh. Long Jen and short yeah. Jen. Yeah, long and hey, short. Hey, I'm not a Jen of any description. <laughs> get that right. Uh, Dr. Crystal, good morning. Tis the season to be sciencey. Oh, yes. Dr. Catherine, good to have you back again. Thank you. Good morning. Dr. Cromo. <laughs> oh, sorry, I almost called you Jeff. This good, oh, yeah, this dude. Uh, good, how are you? How are you, Shane? I'm good. Dr. Ray? Morning, Dr. Shane. This reminds me of that scene from Spies Like Us. Doctor, 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 and doctor. Did we miss anybody? Well, uh, folks, if you're wondering what we're doing today, we are going to go through our favourite or least favourite pieces of science for the year, and I'm also going to ask the team what they want for Christmas and give them nothing, um, because that's just how generous I am. Dr. Crystal already looks disturbed, so why don't we start with you? What is your big two things for science for 2014, madam? Well, if, if I had to say what I wanted for Christmas... Oh, you um, want to start there? I, I would. You okay, know, sure. I, I actually would like um, a cure for Ebola. <laughs> I, I think that that's a, a, big, uh, a big need in 2014. Um, this year mm. saw the, the biggest uh, outbreak of Ebola since the virus was discovered in 1976 yeah. um, and is currently still raging in uh, West Africa. I think um, an estimated almost 7,000 people have, um, have died of Ebola and uh, it's got a um, mortality rate of around 60%, so it's quite a scary, scary disease. I think we were quite fortunate that um, it hasn't spread uh, outside kind of the three main countries, so you know it's uh, still raging in Guinea, uh, Sierra Leone and uh, Liberia, but mm. there have been some cases in the US and Spain and, and some other African countries, but luckily we haven't seen it really take off. And so, so for me, I think that's well, that was the biggest uh, infectious disease story of 2014. Um, I was pretty, I don't know about you, but I was pretty appalled at Australia's uh, uh, reluctance to engage uh, with the worldwide effort, um, especially when it was uh, contrasted with our willingness to engage in, uh, in conflict in other yeah, areas yeah. of the world. I thought that was a really, you know, almost in the same week we were saying, well, no, we, we can't go and help with Ebola because it's too risky. Oh, but we can send um, troops and air support into, into a war zone. Yeah. And so for me, I, I, I felt that was a big, uh, a big, uh, a scary piece of. Um, well, you'd hope there'd be a new, a new tourism campaign or something that just says something like Australia. We drop bombs, not bandages. <laughs> Maybe you that's know, because we have a defence minister and not a science minister. Yes, mm. the ongoing lack of a science, science minister, minister continues to mm. plague us um, in that sense. But, um, but Australia has stepped up and funded a um, a, a, a centre uh, in Sierra Leone, um, which will be staffed. But and, but also Australia was actually. Really quick on the research response. So um, vials and samples of Ebola have actually come into Australia to be studied in the high security laboratories at the Australian Animal Health Laboratories down here in Geelong. So uh, Victoria is very much
much helping lead Australia's research response to Ebola. Also, um, CSL, one of the major manufacturing and pharmaceutical biotech companies, has been approached by the Gates Foundation to try and look for uh, how they can turn the blood and plasma from surviving Ebola patients into a therapy. So, so Australia is leading the way in some of the research efforts, and so I hope that mm. um, hopefully in the new year and into 2015 we'll start to see some therapies and some vaccines coming out to um, to really tackle this disease. But for now, it's basic epidemiology and public health measures, um, tracking people who have it, isolating them, looking at who they've been in contact with and trying to stop the spread of disease that mm. way in the old-fashioned public health response. Yeah, it's certainly it's one of those diseases, I suppose, where we need, we need a good treatment program because you're not going to get rid of Ebola because the source is not us so it's always going to be there. No, because this, this, the, they think they've tracked the source actually coming from an animal to human transmission mm. so it's coming, as it's called a zoonotic disease, coming from animals. Um, but, uh, <laughs> it's a big word for the end of the year. Yeah, if it starts with Z, right and we oh, don't yeah. have enough of those. No. When, you, when you do the alphabet you get to Z and sometimes you run out. So zoonosis is a good one if you're playing Scrabble. And, um, <laughs> Assuming you can spell it. <laughs> but my other, my other, my other silly, um, my silly uh, science uh, a story oh, yeah. for the year was in July when um, some smallpox vials were discovered in the back of a cupboard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you remember that, but um, there was some uh, cleaning out of some storage rooms going on at the uh, National Institutes of Health in the US, and they uh, they uh, found six vials of smallpox that have been sitting around for 60 years. So so I, I, I'd like to think that when we've got some Ebola samples coming into Australia, that they're in a high security environment and we won't be seeing these uh, <laughs> samples going missing. Well, at least write down where we put them. So, so we can remember. We can remember. <laughs> this is probably, yeah. Well, the smallpox one was a big one, but uh, thankfully they, the right people found them. So, yeah. All right. Uh, Dr. Ray. Uh, hi, thanks, Dr. Shane. You're putting your hand up because you want to be next or you have something to say? Well, it's one of them kind of overlaps with Dr. Crystal's oh, comment. Oh, yeah. And actually I want to bring it up because I want Dr. Crystal to comment on it. Um, the... Uh, issue about Ebola. One of the aspects I looked at it as a, as a chemical engineer was the one about it was kind of amazing that there were therapies that they could try. There was that startup company in California that had made just enough protein or vaccine to try on the two Americans that got flown back to uh, Emory. Uh, and, and that there are some other therapies out and people are going, it's amazing that from, I don't know, a six-month lead time, although that startup company was around for a little bit longer, that you could see it's actually tractable to go, this is a terrible disease, we should try to find something to help cure it, vaccine, vaccine some type of therapy. Now, while that is really amazing, it also speaks to something about the model pharmaceutical companies run in, and that if it's got symptoms that are chronic and lost over time, you've got a reoccurring customer, and that's an attractive business model. But things that you cure in the short term need big drivers to get a company onto it. And that Ebola's been around since, as you just said, 1966? 1976. 1976. Been around for a while. Technology's been there for at least 10 years. But it wasn't until that we actually had a focused outbreak that it brings into relief, hey, we need to focus on that. And while it is really amazing about the science, it's a little disheartening that we're still in a pharmaceutical business model that goes, wow. You know, there's some things we should just have cures around, 
there's other examples where if there aren't enough people to cure, it's not economically viable. There's a, is it, is it, was it earlier this year, it was one of the hepatitises there's a new treatment for in the States. Hepatitis C. And, and the, the cost is like the highest drug cost ever because it's a treatment that's shorter, but they're concerned there aren't enough people with the disease to make it economical. That's, that's not quite the case. Um, so I, I think what's interesting is you've got to think of who the customer is. So in this case, um, the customer for an Ebola drug or vaccine isn't going to be the people in West Africa, it's going to be governments. And so you've got to think about who drives um, the, the, the kind of the market, if you like, for these products. And it's governments who have started putting up their hand and saying to companies, hey companies, why aren't you making this? We need it. And so you've really got to think it not just from the company's perspective, but you know who the customer is who's going to be paying and buying for this. So if, so if governments haven't turned around and said, actually we think Ebola is a problem and we'd like to incentivise and create um, mechanisms for which the companies see this as an attractive thing to develop, Develop, then you know, I think there's, a, there's relationships that need to go on between the public sector and the private sector to drive these responses. And we're seeing good examples of that in malaria, which is actually one of my other success stories for this year, which is the fact that globally deaths from malaria over the past decade have halved. And this year some research came out that showed that we've probably saved 4 million lives. And a lot of the ways in which um, uh, drugs for malaria are now being developed are through these public-private partnerships where governments are working with large pharmaceutical companies to make this happen and so I think responsibility needs to be taken on both sides and I think it's only through these public-private relationships that we're going to see the acceleration of these drugs into the clinic and then into people and that's actually a really exciting thing I've seen about mm. Ebola which you mentioned Dr Ray is that we are starting to re-examine the pharmaceutical model no longer can we really claim that well it'll take 10 to 15 years to develop this into a therapy mm -hmm. from from lab to implementation and I think that what we see now is that if you have the need and the desire and the will, that you can actually accelerate drug development safely and, and, and effectively to, um, to be able to respond over a much shorter time frame. So my hope that the silver lining from the Ebola crisis will be people will actually sit back and say, well, how can we redesign the model of getting drugs to market to do so and to give patients access faster? Mm. It's interesting too because um, over the years, I mean, we've been lucky in a way because Ebola, as my understanding of it, is actually quite a crap virus in terms of humans. It kills us. Um, it's not like HIV or influenza. Mm. It kills us. It's bad at doing what viruses do. It goes too far with humans, whereas with the animals we catch it from, it doesn't kill them. So it's a very effective virus. Yeah. So there's, a, there's a balance there in terms of you know where you put resources. HIV, malaria, influenza versus Ebola, which has been, you know, a lot of scary stuff in the news, but the number of people who have died from is actually really small compared to other other contagions that have been around. Yeah, I really mean, small. two to 3,000 people die of malaria every day. Yeah. So, you know, so there are bigger infectious disease issues out there. But, um, and, and so I think that we need to sort of look at the way in which we're putting the resources towards solving those problems. Mm. Dr. Ray, you're uh, Yeah, but thanks, Dr. Ones? Crystal. I wanted, I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. So that was really cool. Uh, my, my second one was, uh, it's really big. It's really big. It's 60 tons big. We're talking about Dreadnought Shrani, the largest f intact dinosaur ever discovered. They, they found two of them. Uh, to give you an idea, it outweighs Diplodocus. It outweighs Brachiosaurus. It actually outweighs the 737. We're talking about a dinosaur that's larger than the workhorse for the plane for Virgin Australia. And, and discovering these intact skeletons and estimating the weight this year was just a really exciting discovery. Mm. And I think um, the, we were talking before we came on air about that, that great photograph of someone leaning 
their arm standing upright, leaning against one of the ginormous bones that they, they discovered, which is probably like a small toe bone or something. <laughs> it was just uh, it's a bit spooky. Yeah, and I, I think they, they estimated that it was about eight stories tall. That's, that's, uh, that's pretty tall for an animal. That's kind of huge. Yeah. Kind of huge. Where's so, that likely to end up in terms of museums? You know, they were. Aren't, I think they were it was found, in South America. Found in Chile, and I'm not yeah. sure where they're, where they're going to end up. The researchers that did the volume estimates were from Drexel. University in Philadelphia. Mm. It'd be so. awesome to see that intact, like in, in one piece yeah. in a museum, even if you have to build an aircraft hangar for it, just so kids yeah. can get and adults can get an idea of the size. So, Dr. Ray, how does it compare to a blue whale? Because the story has always been that the blue whale is and always has been the largest living animal. I assume the blue whale is still bigger. You're the zoologist. You tell me which one weighs more. <laughs> I don't know about this dinosaur, dude. 60, you tell me. 60 tons? I don't know. We better do some research and tweet it out later, I think. Quick to the Google. To, the, to yeah. Dr. Google, find out what's going on. Um, it, it's got to be close because I think even, um, as I say, Diplodocus, um, sounds more like something that would walk with a heavy step. Um, <laughs> blood, blood, blood. It, it, that that was, I think, very close to the yeah. blue whale. So this might have exceeded it, which would be interesting. Just to paint the picture for the listener, we now have most of our panel on yeah. the, either their uh, iPads or phones or other tablets very quickly. Blue whale, 200 tons. And um, uh, 200 pun, tons. pun allowed this time of year? Yeah, sure. Uh, where, but where do you weigh a whale? <laughs> a whaleway station, of course. Jeez, uh, uh, that's um, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's one just for the Christmas quick, cracker. Quick aside on blue whales: the only blue whale population that's recovered in recent history is the one off the coast of California because of conservation practices. Hmm. The only one that's recovered. And one more little fact uh, <laughs> is that a child can stand up in a, in a blue whale's aorta, its main blood vessel. Yeah, there we go. All right, Dr. Crystal, you were going to say something? No? I was going to say, speaking of conservation, I think Dr. Catherine had a story for us. Oh, yeah, do you want to do your, we'll do your uh, conservation story now, actually. As soon as we're on this theme, we've got to get off the blue whale somehow. Thanks, Dr. Shane. So I had two main science sort of highlights, although, in fact, they're both lowlights for the year. The first one was the Ebola crisis, which we've discussed, and the second one was the story that came out in September this year from the World Wildlife Foundation um, with some remarkable figures about their research um, where they've found that over the past 40 years, almost 50% of the wildlife has actually died. Gee, 50%? That's... Yeah. Um it's incredible. In only 40 years, which is most of our lifetime... Yeah, uh, we've killed off half of it. Yeah, it's, it's really, really dreadful. Um, and you sort of wonder what will happen in the next 40 years or for our grandchildren uh, if we continue with this decline. So mm. it's, it's a great concern. Particularly the freshwater ecosystems have been the most greatly affected over that time period uh, when numbers have dropped by about 75%. Wow. Yeah, the biggest declines have been seen in the low, low poverty um, areas and, and countries. Uh, but certainly there's, there's really little being done around the world. Um, mm for this, this huge problem. Mm. Dr Jen? That's what I was going to say I want for Christmas. So now when you say, Dr Jen, what do you want for Christmas? I want governments to, you know, I, I get that there's lots of things that humans need and I respect that, but, you know, we have to have governments taking seriously that we have ecosystems that need to be respected and cared yeah. for and, and we're losing wildlife that, you know, we can't get back. That's mm. what I want for Christmas. You know, I want world peace too and I'd like a cure for Ebola and stuff, but I'd just really like some action on looking after our wildlife and our ecosystems. Yeah. Certainly the researchers at the time came 
out with the comment that if half the animals in the zoo died, there would be public outcry, yet half the, animal, half the wildlife around the entire world has died in 40 years and, and very few people are doing much about it. That's a really good analogy, actually, because I don't, you don't normally think about it that way, but um, the, the sheer number... Do we, do, we have a, do we have an idea, that's in terms of the number, do we have a, a number in terms of the, the percentage of species, or is that too hard to determine, I suspect? Well, they analysed over the... Um, the since 1970, they analysed 10,000 different populations, which covered uh, 3,000 species. Uh, so I'm not sure in terms of actual numbers, but mm. the percentage was... O across the, the entire group that was analysed uh, was about 50% that had died. Yeah, I'm quibbling over minutia when it's just a disgraceful... You know, it's kind of like half your house burned down and someone says, but which half? <laughs> you don't really care, do you? Um, that's bad. All right, we're going to take a break, folks, uh, and then we're going to come back. I'm going to try and ring Dr Lauren. She's uh, home baking, apparently. <laughs> she stood me up during the week. I'm not even sure I should talk to her. Actually, she's been a bit unwell. and She, <laughs> she couldn't make it. But uh, I like to give her grief. But she's at home. She's uh, cocked it up some uh, stuff for us as well. So we're going to give her a call. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now, we have put in a call to Dr Lauren at home. She's busy in the kitchen baking up a storm for her family. Dr Lauren, can you hear me? I can indeed, Dr Shane. How is everyone in the studio? We're good. Ooh. I think we're all good. Yep. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, tell us, what are your two big highlights for, um, for the year? And you can't talk about your trips. I think they were pretty big highlights for me. But, um, no, look, it's, it's been a huge year in science, obviously. And I think, um, for me, two of the big stories were really around stem cells. Yeah. And they really formed, I guess, my high, one of my highlights and one of my lowlights this year as well. So I'll start with the positive. Um, and you can probably remember back in October, there was the news that a, a man in um, Poland was actually able to walk again after he was given a stem cell treatment. And this is pretty amazing stuff. So he actually had a spinal injury from a knife fight um, that happened in about 2010. And since then, he'd been completely paralysed below the waist and wasn't able to walk. And what they were actually able to do is take some olfactory stem cells, those stem cells that um, are basically to do with your, your smell, your sense of smell, and they were able to take his own um, stem cells, grow them up, and then actually inject them into the spinal cord. Mm. And it was pretty amazing stuff. So he then, with the aid of a... A walker was actually able to take his first steps in, in you know four years after the injury. So I thought that was pretty pretty cool stuff. That's amazing, I think, and it it's one of those scenarios. Though, how how unique was it? As in, is it likely the same therapy could be utilised for others, or was there something unique about his injury that made him more repairable in that way? Yeah, look, I think that's really the key thing. You know, the um, it was a quite a. I mean, not the spinal uh, spinal injury for a simple thing, but relatively this is quite a simple injury. So the, the doctors and all the researchers have made that very clear that while this is really exciting progress, you know, this gentleman was very lucky in that his particular injury was quite susceptible to, to this sort of treatment. But um, it definitely gives a lot of hope that as the technology gets better, you know, more and more people might be able to be helped by it. Mm. Mm. What's your other one? Well, my low light, um, unfortunately, He's, he's still in the stem cell uh, area, and you guys probably remember the um, the controversy around this idea of the stimulus-triggered acquisition of pluripotency or STAPS 
stem cells. Oh, yeah. Was that yeah. the stress them and they'll change stuff? Exactly, exactly. So the idea with this was, look, rather than having to use embryonic stem cells or other stem cell sources that have been problematic, um, this group in Japan from uh, the Riken uh, Centre for Developmental Biology came out and said, look, what we can do is actually uh, you put, put some cells basically into an acidic um, material and basically stress them out so that they revert back to pluripotent stem cells. Mm. And the papers were huge. Everyone was ridiculously <coughs> excited about it. I think we talked about it on the show when the papers first came out. And then, unfortunately, in the weeks following that, um, other groups around the world tried to replicate it and found that they couldn't. There were then some investigations into it, and then it was found that, you know, it probably wasn't quite what it was cracked up to be. And so there was um, the papers were withdrawn, and, and um, the researchers involved were obviously reprimanded for that. But I think for me, the really sad thing from that is that one of the researchers actually committed suicide um, because of the scandal. So it was definitely a, a low light, I think, in terms of science. Absolutely. I remember when we did that story, and I can't remember, it might have been Dr. Crystal who did it, but um, we, yeah, she's nodding furiously. Um, but <laughs> I, I remember saying that it was one of those pieces of science that seemed so simple that it, it was probably right. You know, it had that feel about it, yeah. sort of, um, you know, that. It seemed like a, a something that you'd look back in 30 years and go, why didn't someone think of that earlier? It had that feel about it, and yet it's turned out not to be quite right. But yeah. it, it, there's probably there was something in it, I think, you know, yeah. in some way. So I know, I mean, investigations are continuing in that area, but it is, it is a tragic um, outcome for that researcher to have yeah. lost his life. And it certainly is one that indicates just how difficult funding and other things are and how, how challenging a research job can be. And, and just this week, um, the researcher who was the lead um, author and lead investigator on that paper has also resigned um, oh. from science as well. So um, I think it's one of those areas where it holds such enormous promise and it is incredibly exciting, but I think it goes back to the point of making sure that research can be reproduced. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the gold standards of, of being able to review and publish research is that other people around the world can replicate it. And I think that that's something in the coming years that scientists are going to need to focus on is not just um, demonstrating their results, but actually demonstrating independent reproducibility of their results mm. if you're going to claim such high-profile results. Openly and free. I can't remember why I was reading this, but I was reading a commentary on um, the uh, maybe last seven years' history of validating uh, cell lines, mm. uh, where there's just even ten years ago, the number of cell lines that people study where you have a model cell line and say, oh, it must be this type of cancer, the number of them that are were contaminated and that weren't around. Mm. Oh, wait, I know where I read it. I read it off a Facebook, Facebook post from <laughs> Dr. Cromo. He oh. now his hand up. Yeah, he's putting his hand up now. Chris? Yes. Uh, briefly, um, the story goes back a long way, but I've got one example. I used to look at, strangely enough, I used to look at chromosomes, and, uh, and one of the, I, I decided to look at the chromosomes from these uh, human cell line that, that an MD thesis candidate was looking at. They're just finished. They're just handed in. They weren't even human. They were, they were mm. mouse. So what, once an aggressive cell line gets in, a cell type gets in with another, when, when we culture them uh, in the culture flask, they can kick the other out. And in fact, this is really important because a lot of, uh, many papers that have published data on a particular cell type as a model for a disease uh, may not have even been looking at that cell type. And asking around uh, various um, people this week, some people do take that very seriously. Someone who I spoke to from the Walter and Eliza 
Professor Hall Institute said that every experiment they do, they actually look at the genetics of the cell lines that they're working with to prove what they are. They should be. You biologists, I tell you, we don't have that sort of stuff in physics. <laughs> when we find dark matter, we'll be sh oh, hang on, better not discuss that. Uh, now, Dr. Lauren, uh, what do you want for Christmas? Oh, God, everything. <laughs> no, look, I think, um, to be honest, after the last week and, and, you know, things that have been going on, I think you, as long as um, everyone can be peaceful over Christmas, that's really... It sounds like a Miss World um, answer, doesn't it? It does, actually. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, you know, um, 2020 vision for all or something oh, optometry-ish. <laughs> well, look, you you have a great day. I hope your uh, your your family endeavours go well, uh, which is always a risk at this time of year. And we will see you in the new year. Thanks for chatting to us. Sounds wonderful. And Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas to you. That was Dr. Lauren, one of our favourites here on the show, and uh, she unfortunately couldn't come in today, but we thought we'd give her a quick bell. And she told me her phone signal reception where she lives is dreadful. And I said, Oh, okay. Well, I'll call your landline. She said, No, that's worse. So. <laughs> Uh, hang on, give me a cup and some string and we'll see what we can make work. All right, uh, moving on. Uh, Dr. Jennifer, you're putting your hand up. You want to go next? I have this mental image of Ian Chubb in a Santa suit sitting around today listening to our show to get our Christmas wish list. You may have wrecked Christmas for everyone with that image, but I'm, you know, I don't know. Um, right, so he'd just, make a great Santa. He probably would, actually. I'm not sure he has beard, the jolly you know? part going there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just I jumping guess. up on his lap for a minute. I'd like to ask him for more <laughs> open-mindedness and leading towards acceptance of GMOs in the future. And I think mm. having endured one hour of this year trying to convince Jeff Shaw of the benefits of GMO while he was trying to convince me about his abortion beliefs, that was a bit of a low light of my year, but it made me realise there's a lot of public education that needs to be done to get people to at least listen to the first ten words of when you're explaining the benefits mm. of a GMO product. And as, as you say, show us the evidence why you think this is so bad and we'll all have three heads. Mm. And, and I think, and, and the key thing is there is it's, it's on our plate to deal with. It's our fault. If we're not communicating it clearly to the public, it's our fault. It's not the public's fault for not accepting it. And that's the, I get very, very pissy when people start indicating the public is stupid and it's like, no, no, no. It's our fault to get this right and we haven't yet and so people are not convinced and frankly, that's just bad luck. We're going to have to do do more work together across the line. Now, your highlight? My, one of my highlights was the awarding of the Nobel Prize in Physics, ostensibly for the guys who did the research yeah. Leading yeah. up to the invention of the LED. Coming back to Blue Australia, LED. I've seen the LEDs everywhere now. Traffic lights, mm. house lights, stadium lights, in office rooms. Christmas trees. Fantastic. <laughs> Christmas trees. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it was the blue the blue LEDs specifically, which blue, are, yeah. Yeah, because this is the amazing thing for those of you who heard this we did this on the show, but um, is that you know, we had red and green for, for a long, long time, but we never had blue. And one of the problems um, was being able to find a material that would give off that particular um, colour. And, of course, if you have red and you have green and you have blue and you whack them all together, what do you get? White. Ah, thank you. Uh, you get white, which is, means that we can take all of the globes, all these nasty fluorescent-type globes that are in people's houses now replacing incandescent globes, and replace them with diodes, which are low power, you know, much cleaner, um, much more expensive, I should say, but <laughs> but better, long-lasting, you know, 30,000 hours. Yeah. I'm not even sure I'll live that long. <laughs> My other highlight was the publication of the coffee genome this year. Oh, right. They discovered there's 25,000 genes, and most interestingly, they discovered that the coffee uses a different genetic pathway to make caffeine than does tea or cacao. 
Is that right? Mm. Yes. So I different Shane, I talked about it on the show. Yeah. Surely you remember in great detail. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying I'm sucking up for lunch, but I remember Dr. Jen talking about that. Oh, there you go. <laughs> now. Is she paying for lunch? Well, maybe now. Well, she's paying for yours now. <laughs> <laughs> you bet. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah, I didn't. I, I do remember something. No, I don't, actually. I, you know, I've drunk too much coffee in my life, and now I can't remember anything. See, I, I paid particular attention to that because I'm allergic to the caffeine in coffee. It makes Is me incredibly right? ill. And I don't actually like the taste of tea, but I do quite like hot chocolates. And I'd always, in winter, you know, but I'd always thought that um, it was probably because, you know, there wasn't nearly as much caffeine in it. But now I need to do some testing to work out whether actually, because it's, you know, been formed by a genetically different pathway, whether actually I don't have the same response to the caffeine. So you're just making an excuse for for yourself to eat a lot of chocolate? Well, no, I was thinking tea. I was thinking I need to do some tests. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, I've been drinking tea for three years, no coffee, which is why I'm a bit edgy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm three years overdue for a cup of coffee. (laughs) Keep keep a lookout. Well, that's that's interesting stuff, and I I suppose... um, Oh, are we going to get synthetic coffee one day as a result? Oh, uh, I think there'll always be a market for the original, yeah, for the yeah. real deal. Well, one of the interesting things they argued was that if now that they understood how the caffeine was made, they'd be able to grow plants that uh, were decaffeinated because yep. the process of you know making coffee decaffeinated is actually a really nasty chemical process mm. and you could potentially um, breed plants that make decaffeinated coffee that you don't have to go through that process. GMOs could mm. have a great outcome compared to making like le- bleaching and lots of chemical exactly. processes to get rid of the caffeine. Exactly. Yay. Dr. Ray? So two things. One, if anyone remembers tomacos from The Simpsons, but um, <laughs> the idea though that we might need synthetic, synthetic coffee or synthetic chocolate because we actually have a, a chocolate shortage because of the number Easter of, Bunny? Well, no, 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 no this is the Easter sorry. Bunny. The amount of cho- uh, cacao beans we can grow is yeah. limited by uh, actually climate change, extreme mm. weather events, and it's actually a risk to most, to Nestle and Cadbury's where they're, they're really concerned about where they're getting their next bit of chocolate sometimes. There was so. a margarita shortage in New York this summer, just gone, because there was a really massive fungal disease that wiped out the lime crop in South America. So people could, you had to pay like $40 for a margarita. Because they had a limited number of limes left. (laughs) Times are tough. The big issue is, geez, I tell you, I was going to bring up something soon about Jupiter, but I mean, when you're talking about a shortage of chocolate and margaritas, I'm not sure I should bother. If you want to know more about chocolate, I did a whole segment on breakfast last week about chocolate running out and wrote a blog post all about it. You can read everything you need to know about the fact that we're running out of chocolate. My last sentence was, hit the panic button. Mm, Good advice. We'll be back in a moment with some more highlights for 2014. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 RRR, the best station in the land. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, you're back. You're listening to 3RRR. It's the last show for Einstein to go go for the year. I think we'll just finish early and hand over to Edith. <laughs> no. You guys are supposed to freak out when I say that and go nuts. <laughs> no! <laughs> you didn't seem to There's care. science. So many highlights. Actually, Dr. Shane, we've had quite a science discussion over the break. Maybe we we should just pick it up. Yeah, well, I'm going to jump in with one and then we'll go back to the team uh, because this is news, folks, that we just can't wait. I've got to get it out. Um, Earlier in the year, it was around May, um, so it's still critical, even now in December. The news came out that um, Jupiter's massive 400 or more year old storm, the big red spot, and if you have a look on our Facebook site, there's a fantastic picture of Jupiter that I took through my telescope, um, (laughs) is getting smaller, and it is getting smaller at an alarming rate. So back in the 1800s, the sucker was something like 40,000 kilometres wide, 
It is down to 16,500 kilometres wide, and it is predicted that in 17 years it will be gone. So don't wait until after lunch, mm. <laughs> because <laughs> this thing is vanishing. So they're not really sure why or what will happen, or will it completely go, will it stabilise? But certainly this massive storm that's been ra- raging on for, for centuries, um, and of course we, we don't know how long, because it wasn't until someone poked a telescope up at uh, Jupiter that we actually saw it, um, this, this may actually disappear from the surface of Jupiter, which I think would be a real shame. Mm. Are, shouldn't we be looking for a monolith on the moon now too? Yeah, you know that isn't no. isn't that part of it. Oh wait, no, that was a movie, right? Yeah, yeah. But they have no idea why why after 400 years the weather patterns would change like that. Well, I think what you've got to remember is that all of these weather patterns on these these you know super planets that we have are very dynamic. So I mean, this isn't a static object. This is a moving, essentially like a giant hurricane. It's enormous, but it is fast moving. It is fluid, or you know, gaseous or fluid, however you want to think about it and you know like the other planets like Saturn where you see these changing patterns Jupiter's no different and as a result um, the time frames might be longer than sort of our lifetime but they're, they're still reasonable given the size of the objects we're talking about. But why is it a shame if it disappears? I mean it, it's it's just a storm on a planet right? Because all the posters of the yeah. solar system will be wrong of course. <laughs> and when you look at it you can see it through a telescope yeah, with the cool. eye it's amazing and what's better still is if you monitor it you can work out you know as a child you can work out how fast Jupiter is rotating because the storm rotates around just like the, the moons do around Jupiter as well. And so it's just it's a <laughs> hotbed of science, biology people, hotbed. All the biologists are looking at each other thinking Shane had a very different childhood <laughs> to what we all had. Yeah. I was looking at the stars while you guys were looking at mould in a petri dish. Hmm. And root, root systems and flowers and stuff. What the? Rooted, okay. rooted in reality we are. Let's, let's head back down the biology path. Dr Cromo... What have you got for us? Uh, first, I'd like to say thanks. Uh, thanks to people who've given me money to survive in the last oh, year. Right? So um, yeah. I feel like a survivor. I should be starting to play Eye of the Tiger. Are you the guy who stands out the front of the children's hospital? With Rattling the tears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, almost. Well, I'd like to think the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the Foundation for Children. Interesting philanthropy. Um, philanthropic funding has provided a lot of my funding over the last year, um, and it's good as a leverage for bigger funding. Hmm. Um, and so I want to briefly go over my, um, the, uh, the trivial uh, lowlights and highlights. Um, so basically, um, the, the interesting things are that uh, the following things, amongst others, have been de- debunked over the last year. Uh, homeopathy, vitamin supplements, and Bigfoot. I'm sure there's, supplements. sure there's plenty of other. Almost uh, just about every vitamin supplement has I, been debunked. I love the fact that you put vitamin supplements in the same bag as Bigfoot. As Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> because it's all, it's all science versus pseudoscience. Evidence, yep. evidence, evidence yeah. is, is what we look for. Beards. Uh, beards are out this year uh, through, for biological reasons. Uh, for, for sex selection, uh, women um, have had enough uh, uh, because of there's been too many beards around. Oh, uh, can you hear that, hipsters? Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, passionate, a, a passionate kiss uh, can, sh- can have you share 80 million bacteria with your partner. Do you know, uh, just outside the studio, folks, uh, yes. you know, you know Kent, Kent, <laughs> Kent panels Hello, for, Kent. for uh, many of the shows on a Sunday morning. Get he's, out the brawn. He's shaving as we speak. <laughs> and my hubby, who's also out there, is yes. um, Oh, yeah. He's Next, very, um, very bearded. An awesome story that came out this year. <laughs> 
think it's... Ray's got to be the facial hair. It's got to come <laughs> no, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, not a full uh, beard. Full yeah. one. Um, uh, my area, uh, chromosomes. Uh, the chromosome, as I think of the chromosome now as a carpet. Story came out this week. You know, carpets have a glue at the bottom, a bottom layer of glue, and they have these little loops coming up that keep us all comfortable when we walk in our bare feet. That is exactly how a chromosome is. It's the glue in the middle, the cohesin, or the, the proteins that are in the middle, and little loops come up. Loops are, are at different sizes, and a pan look this morning, you can actually buy a carpet with loops of different sizes so that's one is going to be uh, hmm. in my, my new house so but my story of the year is a very simple one it's showing how we all can do science one uh, a group in the US this uh, a neuro a neurophysiologist Joanna Meyer what she did is she she studied how animals exercised mice in a cage will run on that wheel she said well wild animals do this so what she did is put a, a wheel in her back garden next to motion sensitive camera so how much did this cost almost nothing but it was amazing paper she had fun doing it which is one of the most important things in, in science and research is to have fun she found that not only do wild mice voluntarily jump on the wheel but wild rats wild shoe shoes, well, it's famous <laughs> wild shoes, the wild shrews, yeah. and even wild frogs. And I just could not find a video clip of a frog running on a wheel. Wouldn't you just love to see that? So, well, would it run or hop? Simple. Uh, hop, skip, and jump, maybe. So <laughs> science can be very complicated, but it can be very simple uh, and very, uh, and, and very, fun, uh, very fun, fun. Hmm. And uh, to finish with, what I would, what I would want for Christmas... Yeah. More senior scientists realizing that social media is the way to get the rapidly catching up with traditional media um, as a way of getting a message across. I was mentored this week. Uh, 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 I was advised by a senior person not to waste time on, on writing blogs. This year, I, together I, um, with a, a, an embryologist called Don Newgreen, I wrote... Uh, I wrote uh, an article uh, for the conversation, and it got picked up by IFL Science, which is a tremendous website for those people out there, um, and it got over 600,000 views. None of my previous papers <laughs> have got anywhere near that. Mm. Second is I want a Lancet paper. Uh, for Christmas, okay. I'm submitting yeah. one uh, next Monday, and, and which is a very it good must journal. be accepted by yeah. uh, by 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 Thursday. <laughs> And finally, I've just found this just surfing for, 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 for <laughs> surfing for gifts for geeks, the robotic <laughs> lawnmower. A robotic lawnmower? Robotic really? lawnmower, yeah. So that's, that's what I'd See, like to See, that's the difference on. between you and me. You want a robotic lawnmower, I want to ride on lawnmower. And my <laughs> wife has said basically that our back garden is about a thousand times too small to warrant that. Well, maybe with the new, uh, the, the, the new Arnie film coming out, maybe you can hire a robot on a lawnmower. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm not going to mow my... Stephen Hawking is actually afraid that that... And I said this about two years ago on this very show, <laughs> that we might... Should we be afraid of, of robots becoming more intelligent than us, Stephen Hawking? Hawking this year, recently, a month ago, said, be afraid, be mm. very afraid. Well, glad he caught up. Um, <laughs> now, what have we got? Uh, we're going to go for a short break, I think, but before, I don't want to finish on, the, on, a, on a sad note. So, uh, Dr. Crystal, we might talk about one of the uh, big losses um, that we had this week. I'll get you to mention it. 
So um, this week saw the passing of Professor Don Metcalf, who passed away at the age of 85. And, and for, 85, for 60 of his 85 years, he was a research scientist at the Walter and Liza Hall Institute. And his work revolutionised cancer treatment and helped probably around 20 million people mm. worldwide. He dedicated his life to the study of the hormones that control blood cell production. And he, um, discussed, he figured there must be a chemical in the body that tells the body to make more blood cells. And his life's quest was to find out what these chemicals were. And he discovered them, he isolated them and purified them and worked out ways to make them as a drug. And that if you then inject these hormones into people, it stimulates their, their, them to make new white blood cells. And it can be used to boost the recovery of patients who've been treated with chemotherapy during their cancer treatment. So, Because chemotherapy just kills off lots of dividing mm. cells and it kills off your cells as well as the cancer cells. But if you inject someone with these blood hormones, then they can repopulate and boost their immune system and recover much, much faster. And so, so people respond to cancer therapy in a much more positive way. And so it was very sad to hear of um, Don Metcalf's passing, but I think it's also really appropriate to celebrate what a great mentor he was to so many scientists here in Melbourne. His amazing contribution um, to, to science and to knowledge. He's probably one of the most amazing scientists never to win a Nobel Prize. And, um, and, the, and the fact that he was, uh, when he was diagnosed um, with his terminal illness, uh, he actually took a microscope home with him. And one of his, um, and, and during the, his last months, he actually still got out of bed and uh, looked down his microscope scoped and counted some cells because he wanted to make sure that he didn't let the researchers down that he was collaborating with to finish off some papers and finish off his research. So, so we uh, celebrate the life of um, Professor Don Metcalf um, and his amazing contribution to, uh, to scientific knowledge. Indeed we do and a great loss. So thank you Dr Crystal. We're going to take a short break and we back with uh, Dr Jen. She's got some uh, final pieces as do I and then a few goodbyes. So stick with us. You're on 3 R. It's Einstein the Gogo. Three triple R. Now we're over to Dr. Jen in dying minutes. Dying? Who's dying? I'm not dying. <laughs> no one's dying. So, um, so I hit the big 4-0 this year, oh. and I, um, so I was really interested in, in this story that came out in May about ageing, and it was about the fact that it's been shown that um, blood from a young mouse can oh. rejuvenate um, old mice, and so th the message has to be very clear. This, you know, we don't know about humans yet, but there are clinical trials, which I'll tell you about shortly, but it turns out that if you connect the circulatory systems of a young mouse and an old mouse, in this instance a 3 month old mouse being connected to an 18 month old mouse and an 18 month old mouse is considered to be about the equivalent of a 70 year old human and it turns out that uh, when that older mouse gets this fresh you know young blood um, it ends up with more and stronger neural connections in the hippocampus the memory and learning improves all overall brain function improves um, you get better growth of blood vessels in the brain as the sense of smell improves so it's this true kind of rejuvenation effect which I just another reason freaky. to have kids. So you can siphon off their blood. <laughs> you can siphon off their blood. <laughs> so first of all, they tested just well, at least blood. Until it's legal to get it at your local, you know, pharmacy. So first of all, they tested just blood, and yet there were these great effects. Then they tested just the blood plasma. So that's when you take out the actual blood cells, and there was mm. the same great effects. And then they tested it with just one single blood protein called GDF11. And this protein is pretty much identical in mice and humans, and it turns out that the levels do really slump in old age, and you get the same effects just from giving over this one blood protein. So there is already a clinical trial
trial happening. There's 18 um, Alzheimer's patients from middle age to uh, quite elderly and they're getting injections of plasma which has been donated by young adults. So consenting young adults and they reckon in a year or so we'll know whether this same effect happens well, in humans or not, which if it does it's pretty mind-boggling really what we're looking at. Given I'm just slightly north of your age, can I say to those researchers... <laughs> Hurry yes, up. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing yeah, stuff. It's, it's, amazing it's, stuff. I mean, it is quite scary, though, because yeah. if we really do end up being able to keep people alive for a long time, that's actually not what our planet needs no, at all. And we're already <laughs> seeing the effects of longer life mm, in terms of absolutely. healthcare costs, in terms of how we, how we treat people, actually, and how we care for people and what we but do. But I guess it's quality versus quantity. Yeah. You know, if you can live a much healthier, happier, old, older age, that's a different kettle of fish to saying we're going to keep people alive into the, you know, till they're 140 mm. or 50 or whatever. So. Well, since, you know, some of us aren't quite at 40 yet, and we know we're not going to be able to retire till we're 70 or 75, we'd prefer to stay healthy as we're going to be working to the workforce till, True. you know, later years. Yeah, you're, you're going to need that extra pill. Anyway, moving right along, I want to quickly tell you about a really cool species of fish that's just been discovered. So you know the um, Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean, the deepest place deepest. on Earth? I think James Cameron managed to get down to about 11 kilometres, mm. something crazy. Mm. Anyway, just this week they've released footage um, taken of a fish living at 8,143 metres. Wow. Previously, the deepest a fish had ever been seen was 7,703 metres, but it's this really eerie looking fish so it's a species of snail fish and it's kind of got these amazing broad sort of fins they're kind of translucent and the tail's kind of like an eel and it just sort of glides through the water There's, if you google it you can see some video of it and the thing that's so amazing is the pressure on your body living at depth like that it's just like you can't fathom how hard it is because basically the the pressure kind of it, it stops your muscles working properly i mean certainly for us we could obviously mm. couldn't do it in any way shape or form and the proteins kind of get bent out of shape at that pressure but researchers a few years ago found a chemical um, called tmao which basically prevents these proteins from getting warped in these deep pressure pressure um, situations for, so for these deep living fish and they did some modeling and they predicted that fish with this particular chemical should be able to live down to eight 8,200 metres, and voila, here we have evidence of this fish that's at um, 8,143 metres. So wow. it's a nice example of this modelling that appeared to be, you know, pretty accurate. That it's now absolutely is, fabulous, There's a fish that's down there, but 8,000 metres. Ouch. That, that's almost equivalent to how far you Ooh. fly commercial. Like, you, yeah, if you're yeah. in an airliner and you look down at the ground, it's that far again yeah. under the ocean. Yeah. That's just yeah. boggling. Yeah, eight kilometres. Yeah. Ouch. Well, uh, I had so many things I couldn't decide, but here's a couple of quick ones. Um, first of all, uh, you may remember that India um, put a uh, craft into Mars orbit this year, and they were the first single country, and I say single country because not multiple country, but first single country to do this on the first attempt, which gives you an idea of how hard it is to actually insert a craft into Mars orbit. So that was a, um, a big, uh, big deal at a budget of only $74 million. I reckon we could do that, you know, <laughs> here in Australia. Um, to put it in perspective... I thought you meant here on this show. Well, you know, why not? Crowdfunding, the Triple R audience is very generous. Dig um, deep. Dig deep, folks. We're going to put something in orbit. Um, but, you know, by contrast, and uh, Dr Ray was talking about it earlier, the film Gravity cost $100 million. <laughs> 
<laughs> Choose your own adventure there, folks. Um, so anyway, it's going to be studying the surface and they're going to be scanning for methane. And I should say, you better hurry up because, of course, the Curiosity rover has been sniffing methane lately. So I'm not sure mm. what these guys are doing now, but um, hopefully backing those results up. So that was the other big thing. Yet another example of, yes, there either was or potentially is some form of life on Mars. So that was some cool stuff from this year. Um, another piece I loved was the... Um, the asteroid 10199 Cheriklo. You remember that one? No, of course not. It was the one that had the ring system like Saturn, so it had some crap floating around it. And as it passed um, it, uh, between the Earth and a certain star, um, people in Africa, if they had te- you know, very simple telescopes, even binoculars, were able to see um, this ring system as it went past this star. Because what happened was the star sort of blinked out as the first ring went by, then, then it blinked out again as the asteroid went by, and then it blinked out again as the star went by. So it's amazing community science to be able to see that. Mm. And the first time we've come across an asteroid that actually had a ring system. So pretty cool. Um, the Orion craft took off. God, there was so many. There was so much stuff this year. I don't know. Um, but I'm not interested in 2014. I'm interested in 2015 because we get to go to Pluto, which is going to be fantastic, and the new Star Wars film comes out. <laughs> in that order of importance, I think. Dr. Ray May. Yeah, <laughs> assuming the Pluto stuff goes well. But look, folks, uh, it has been a massive year for us, and I want to just run through a few uh, thank yous before we go. Uh, first of all, to all the staff at Triple R who've just been extraordinary, especially Elizabeth, who's been helping with um, organising a lot of our guests this year. And just to put a number on it, we've had close to 100 guests on the program this year, which is cool. Um, the radiotherapy team, we have to thank them for pretty much always finishing on time and always <laughs> introducing us in a lovely way they do. Um, the team of podcasters, um, they've been absolutely fabulous. And for those of you who podcast the show, you know what a great job they do. And I do hope, folks, uh, podcasting that I put the brakes in at the right place for you. It can be a pain when Dr. Shane doesn't do that. Um, Dr. Fiona, who many of you will remember was a long-time host on this program, who uh, coordinates the podcasters in a way uh, such that I never have to worry about it, which is fantastic. All the institutions that have helped us with guests, so RMIT, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, the Weehive, Flory, um, La Trobe University, Deakin University, Swinburne, Monash, University of Melbourne, um, also the, the group down where Lauren works at the Centre for Eye Research Australia, the Synchrotron, and of course the students, Dr. Jen's students who ran the program in October when the team went out on strike. <laughs> um, again, uh, Most importantly, though, all the listeners who actually uh, pitched in for Radiothon, not just for this program, but for the station as a whole, I mean, the station runs on that money. So you may think you've made a minor contribution, but actually you have made the contribution that keeps the station alive. So a massive thank you to all of you who have subscribed, whether it was for this program, the station as a whole, or any other program. A big thank you to the entire team that I have here, Dr. Lauren, Dr. Diani, Dr. Crystal, Chris KP. I thought he'd be here today, didn't turn up. Interesting. I'm sure he sent me an email, I've just forgotten my old age. Uh, Dr. Cromo, Dr. Ray, Dr. Adam, Dr. Jenny, Dr. Catherine, um, and Jennifer Henry, who is now back here on uh, planet Earth rather than being in the US. Uh-huh. Live for doing our Twitter feed all Woo-hoo! year and listening to us. And um, finally, uh, for listening every week, thank you very much, folks. We very much appreciate you tuning in. We have to hand over now to Edith. Um, it has been our absolute pleasure broadcasting to you in 2014, and we will see you again in, I don't know, eight or nine weeks. Early Feb. Keep listening to Triple R. There's going to be some fantastic broadcasting over the summer. We love you very much and appreciate your support. Seven.
You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.